Good morning. Good morning. I'm Kotz. I'm one of the pastors here. And I have to say that every time in case somebody's joining us for the first time online. So, hey. Um, we are at the last part of a series called Revealing Jesus. We've been going through a thematic study of the book of Revelation. I would have loved to have gone verse by verse, chapter by chapter, but that would take us another three years. So we're just going through the main themes. And the themes that we're picking, you know, we have to even cut down on that. Um, we were picking themes that started early in the Bible and has, these are threads that's going woven throughout the scriptures and it gets tied up at the end of the book of Revelation. So today we're talking about our final theme, which is theme number five, which is the city. And I don't know if you guys know this, but there's this interesting story that's happening. If you look for cities in the Bible, from the first one to the very last one, you'll see that there's this really interesting uh, story that is trying to tell us. And John, who wrote the book of Revelation, picked up on that, and he decided to you know, say, well, this is what we expect the city to look like in the future. So, and these are the last two chapters of Revelation. So if you listen carefully today, then you might not understand everything in the last two chapters of Revelation, but you'll get a good idea of what the last two chapters in Revelation are trying to say. So before we jump into the city, we have to start in Genesis chapter one and two, which is not the city, but it is the garden, the garden. You see, the garden is this imagery of how God is coming down to earth. His kingdom is coming down to earth. He kisses the surface of the earth and humanity, and now everything on earth is good. It's honky-dory. It is heaven on earth. It is shalom. That's what the Hebrew people call it, shalom. And here's an artist's depiction right, of what it is. There's like a big tree in the middle of the garden. It's super high. It's the biggest tree in the garden. It's in the center of it. And from there, you see the waters pouring out, and the waters form into rivers, and it goes to the four corners of the earth, and every part of the earth is blessed by it. There's life. Wherever the water touches, there's life, right? And these river, it, it represents, it's also a symbolic way of saying that in the beginning, the world was abundant of resources. There was a lot of peace. There was uh, a lot of things that you see in the world that are good as a reflection of the goodness of God. We see God's image in people that's not corrupt. There's no hoarding because there's enough stuff to hold, you know, for everybody. There's no sickness. There's no pain. There's no death. This is the world that God intended in the very first place. And that whole thing, God calls shalom. And then we have Adam and Eve, and uh, they do something bad, and then eventually they have kids, Cain and Abel, and they have a third kid, but that comes later in the story. Okay, and it's through the Cain and Abel story that we get to see a glimpse of the very first city. The first city, at least in the Bible, because if you do archaeological digs, maybe you'll find other cities like, oh, this one predates this one. But at least in the Bible, this is the first city, okay? And we're going to talk about that in a second. But before we talk about the first city in the Bible, I have to define what a city is, okay? Because the way that we, you and I, we define city is very different from the way that the Bible, the biblical authors define city. In those days, a city, at least in the Bible, is a group of neighborhoods surrounded by a wall, if you look at old ancient like photographs of ancient cities, you'll always see like these thick, tall walls around a civilization that would be considered a city. So when you think like Los Angeles, they would not look at Los Angeles and say, "Oh, that's a city." You know, if there was if if the mayor of Los Angeles decides to build a wall around Los Angeles, then it would be called a city. If there's a wall around it, it was a city. If there is no wall around it, it was not a city. It was probably a village. Okay, so that's the thing you have to keep in mind. That's the dis the, the the feature of a city back then. Okay. So, back to the story of Cain and Abel. We have Cain who is 
is getting jealous of his brother Abel. Cain is like, ooh, he's in the way of me getting full favor from God. So he's like, I'm raging with anger and I want to get rid of him because he's in the way of me having this close relationship with God, right? So he's like, I, I have to kill this guy. I have to kill my brother. And this is where we pick up the story. We read this last week, but good reminder. Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? Like I could see something in you that doesn't belong there. Okay, you need to deal with that anger or else it's gonna have mastery over you. Next verse. If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. We talked about that, which is a symbol of the beast. Uh, it desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Like this anger inside of you is gonna lead to something worse. And so what does Cain do? Instead of having mastery over his anger, he lets the anger have mastery over him, and this is what happens. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, hey, let's go for a walk. Let's go to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. At least in the Bible, and I'm going to keep saying this because I'm sure it happened before. At least in the Bible, this is the first, it's the invention of murder, okay? He's like, there's something I want, there's somebody in the way, the way I'm gonna get to that something is by killing the person, getting rid of the person that's in front of me, that's in the way, and by doing that, I'm gonna get what I want, which is favor from God, right? But in introducing murder, Cain comes across this epiphany, which he probably should have thought of before he did this thing, which is, wait a minute, if I'm introducing murder into this world, that also means that somebody could kill me. Like, I could be killed by my own invention, right? As a matter of fact, when we get kicked out of the garden and we are, like, away from God, people are going to look around and say, hey, how come we're not with God anymore? Oh, they're going to blame me, and they're going to use that murder thing I invented, and they're going to use it against me. So he, all of a sudden, he's feeling insecure. Like, what have I introduced to this world? Let's keep reading the story. Cain said to the Lord, today you are driving me from the land and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. So all of a sudden he's feeling, okay, I gotta look, look behind my back. I gotta make sure around the corner, around that tree. I gotta make sure that there's nobody there with, a, you know, you know, with karate skills that might kill me. I don't know, right? So he's like worried now. So what does he do? What does he do? Let's keep reading. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Let's keep going. Cain made love to his wife and she became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. When you have a family, you have even more things to protect, right? So now Cain's even more worried and more insecure. Cain was then building a city. First mention of a city in the Bible and he named it after his son Enoch. So he builds up walls because of his insecurity. He builds up walls because he needs to be protected, self-protection, right? Now, this story continues about five to six generations after Cain. This is what we read. There's a guy named Lamech. That's his descendant. Lamech said to his wives, I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. You could hear the boastfulness, right? Before Cain killed somebody and then he felt remorse. What have I done? Oh no, I feel the insecurity. So he builds up walls. And now five or six generations later, his, ancestors, his not ancestors, his descendant is almost boastful about it. Yo, I just killed somebody. Why? Because somebody slapped me, right? And you know what? If my great, 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 great grandfather, you know, killed somebody, well, I'm going to be doing this 77 times, right? Like he's boastful. He's proud of it. He's celebrating the fact that he is a murderer. How did this happen? 
Well, this is how this is how it usually starts. Protection. I'm afraid that somebody's going to kill me, so I'm going to build a wall. Protection. I want to make sure that I'm safe. Security. And from that protection usually comes insulation. You're in a bubble now. So the things that you have to, opinions you have about the world, well, you're in an echo chamber, so every time you say something, everyone's gonna agree with you. And eventually, the toxic culture starts to breed, right? And it becomes an evil breeding ground for this toxic culture. Because you're always around people who agree with you. If you step outside of your city, you're gonna find out everybody has a different set of beliefs, but inside the city, what started off as a way to protect yourself has now become an evil breeding ground. So what the biblical authors in Genesis are trying to say, and you know, you could tell I love Genesis. We'll talk about Genesis maybe next year, but you'll, you'll find out that early in the Bible, cities are considered to be bad. We know this because every time a city is mentioned, you'll find out that it's founded by a murderer, it is ruled by a corrupt king, right? Um, that there are people who live there who are arrogant and violent. So you're like, so why doesn't God destroy the city? Well, not everything in the city is bad. Take a look at this. Lamech married two women, one named Adah and the other one Zillah. Adah gave birth to Jabal. He was the father of those who live in tents and raise livestock. Up until now, people lived under trees, right? And there's, there's this guy that's like, wait a minute, I have an idea. What if we have protection over our heads? And they're all like, Jabal, you are a genius. Let's, what do we call them? Like, I don't know, tents? Like, oh yeah, let's totally do that, right? And like, look at my tent. Mine's bigger than yours. Like, oh, look at yours. You know, like, mine looks like a triangle. And everyone's like, well, mine's on four sticks. Yeah, I don't know, right? They create tents. They're like, wow, invention. This is so cool. Livestock? Yeah, you know, the other, what are you drinking? It's, it's milk from your mom? Like, no, no, from a cow. Like, what? Right? Like, did you do that whole thing right over the field? Like, well, no, I had help from an ox. Like, an ox? And what's that dog? Like, oh, he's my pet. What? You could have an animal as your pet? That's so, right? And people are like, I love this life. Okay, let's keep going. There's some good things happening here. His brother's name was Jubal, which we get the word Jubilee, by the way. He was the father of all who play stringed instruments and pipes. What's that weird sound? Oh, I invented something called the instrument. Wait, what, you just put like five strings on there and you could pluck it and it makes sounds? Like, yeah, what are you gonna call it? It's like, mm, guitar, you know, like, whoa! <laughs> like, Jubal, you're a genius! Like, I know, my brother made like all this stuff and I made instruments and pipe organs eventually. Like, whoa, that's crazy, right? That's not the only thing. Here's another feature of the city. Zilla also had a son, Tubal Cain, who forged all kinds of tools out of bronze and iron. Are you trying to dig a hole with that stick? Yeah, well, I, I invented something called a shovel. Whoa, look at that, right? There's good stuff that comes from the city too, right? They create hoes and shovels and rakes, and they're like, this is so cool, I'm like, oh my gosh. But here's the thing, when you're in an insulated area, a city, when your main purpose is to protect yourself from the outside evil forces, eventually these tools become swords and shields, arrows, Right? And so even the good things that they, they were created in the city eventually becomes weapons of destruction. Fire could keep us warm, but it could also burn down your neighbor's house. Right? Even education could be used for good, but it could be used to harm other people. 
Music could be used to uplift people, but it could also be used to tear somebody down. When you're in an insulated area that's toxic, even the good things turn bad, right? So this is where we come across the second city in the Bible. And this is basically, this story is found at the end of that long list of things that the city was able to create. And I'm not gonna read through this passage, but you're probably familiar with this. It's called the Tower of Babylon, or we call it Tower of Babel, but in the Bible, the word for Babel and Babylon are exactly the same, right? So we follow the genealogy of Cain, we see all these people doing all these things, and then we come to the Tower of Babel. Here's a rough image of that, okay? And the way that the authors of of Genesis describe the Tower of Babel it's interesting because they actually use opposite words that were used in the, in the garden story. Like, a, like, for example, we talk about how God is coming from the heavens down to the earth to create this garden, and the representation of that is this tree, from the heavens to the earth, right? But in this story, they say, no, people came together and tried to build a tower from the bottom up to reach God so they could be God. See, it's the opposite. God comes from the heavens here on earth to give people the image of God. People are coming from the bottom and going up trying to be and replace God, right? So Babylon, the Tower of Babel, Babylon is a city that represents the opposite of the safe garden God created for humans. So Genesis chapter 1 and 2, garden. Genesis chapter 11, Tower of Babel or Tower of Babylon. Okay, so the way that this story is told, it's meant to be juxtaposed next to each other. We have the garden and we have the tree. In the center of the garden, there is a big tree that reaches to the heavens. In the story of the Tower of Babylon, there's a tower in the middle of the city that reaches to the heavens. Are you guys tracking so far? Okay, good. I know when I talk about Revelation, I'm like, I hope people could track. Okay, so let's compare the two. Let's take a look here. For example, in the garden, it's protected by God. God is the one that oversees the protection of humanity here. But in the city, it's the, the violence is protected by a wall, right? Let's go to the next category. There's a river that, or rivers, plural, that, that freely pour out life to its surroundings. Like, no, it's endless. It's, there's no limit. Everybody is blessed by it. The whole world is blessed by this tree, right? But in the city, the walls are there to keep resources within. This is our stuff. There's a scarcity. There's not enough stuff, so we're just going to hold on to everything we can. Next category in the garden, God reaches down to earth represented by the tree. We talked about this. In the city, humans trying to become God represented by the tower, right? They're opposites. In the garden, there's uh, one of my favorite theologians, his name is Walter Brueggemann, Old Testament uh, scholar. He says, he calls this the litany of abundance, meaning everything in the world, we live as if there's abundance. So because of that, we're generous all the time. Can I borrow 10 bucks? Sure, here you go, here's 100. Why? Well, I got a money tree in the back, right? This is how people lived in the garden. Like, we, there's endless supply. You could have, you want a cup of sugar? Here's a pound of sugar. Don't take too much, you know, but, you know, because for your health, but here, take it, right? Right, but in the city, it's the opposite. It's the myth of scarcity, another term by Walter Brueggemann. He says that when we live in a world of scarcity, when we're convinced that there's a limited amount of resources, then we end up hoarding. And to get what we want, a lot of times we try to take what we need with the threat of death. That's what war is, right? So you're looking at all this and you're like, man, the city is so bad. And the first few chapters of the Bible, and the first few books of the Bible, the city is always associated with badness. It's bad. Stay away from the city. 
We have the Sodom and Gomorrah. That's another city. Bad. And God destroys it, right? Egypt, that's another city. Has walls around it. Bad. Get my people out of there, right? So if you're reading the Bible from the very beginning, you might be thinking, oh, the, you know, the, the, the solution is so clear. The solution is so clear. Let's do this. Let's plant a garden, right? Let's, let's leave the city and start our own garden. That's the solution. As a matter of fact, there's a lot of biblical characters who tried that. You guys know the story of Noah? The big flood comes and they're in the boat and for a long time and then the water recedes and they're stuck on a mountain, right? What is the first thing, oh, the Bible quiz, what is the first thing that Noah does when he comes out of the boat? Genesis 6, 7, and 8. Guys, we're only eight chapters into the Bible and you haven't read it. Okay. Noah plants a vineyard. Why does he do that? Oh, by the way, what does Noah do after he plants the vineyard? He creates wine and he gets naked. Now, is it because he's way too drunk? Is that why he's naked? Some people would say that. But this is Noah trying to reclaim the garden. Adam and Eve were naked in the garden. He plants a garden, takes off his clothes, thinking, now that evil is all washed away off the surface of the earth, I'm going to be the new Adam. And so he takes off his clothes and, you know. Oh, and the, I forgot to tell you this. Um, the garden, the words that are mentioned in the garden story implies that it's on top of a hill, okay? Because the water flows out of it to the world, it's on a hill. So the boat, the water recedes, the boat's on a hill, Mount Ararat, I believe. And then uh, he plants a garden on the hill and he goes naked. He's trying to be Adam again, right? Another story, when Moses pulls the Israelites out of Egypt, out of slavery, and they're going into the desert, out of the city, and people are saying, I wanna see the face of God. And God's like, you're not ready to see my face, but how about this? We'll create a tent. Thank you, thank you, Jabal, for creating that in the first place, inventing it. And he gives instructions, chapter after chapter, instructions of what the inside of the tent should look like. And if you look at the descriptions, they're descriptions of the garden. They're even saying that the lampstand should look like tree branches. Like these are words that are supposed to call us back to the Genesis creation story, right? These are people who are trying to create the garden, recreate the garden. Let's plant a garden, guys, because we want to go back to what is good and away from something that's evil. But then they remember all those stories about the new inventions like music and you know, all that stuff. So the response to this is this, but the city is not all evil. There's some good things that come out of the city, right? We've got music, we have pets, we have garden tools. Like we can't just do away with the city. So God gives an announcement. He's like, guys, here's the perfect solution. The solution is this, I, God, will build a garden city. Let's combine the two together. Basically, here's a city with walls, Inside the city, let's build a garden. Maybe that's how we should, you know, this is the best of both worlds, right? Let's build, that, let's build a city and have a garden in it. And they actually do an experiment for this. The experiment for the garden city, the first garden city is in a place called Jerusalem. There's a guy named David, King David. He overtakes the city on a hill, right? And he says, I am now going to build, make this city look like a garden. This is 2 Samuel chapter five, take a look, here we go. David then took up residence in the fortress and called it the city of David, we call it Jerusalem. He built up the area around it from the terraces inward. So he's trying to change the city that he's living in to make it more and more into a garden. Let's keep going. David went to bring up the ark of God, which is the presence of God in the box, right? From the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. People are cheering, like David's bringing in the ark and everyone's like, yeah! 
Look at the details of what David is dressed as here. Wearing a linen ephod, meaning he's in his tidy whities Nothing else. He's, why is he doing that, by the way? Adam, Noah, he's like, this is the garden. So let's strip naked, right? David was dancing before the Lord with all his might while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts uh, and the sound of trumpets. People are celebrating. They're like, yeah, the Eden garden is back and this time it's in our city. Woo, let's keep reading. <laughs> they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in this place inside the tent, the tent that David had pitched for it. So that's like the, the tent that God wants, right? And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, which are the two types of offerings that uh, uh, Cain and Abel gave to the, to the Lord, meaning as they're entering into the garden, we're giving the same offerings that Cain and Abel gave before the Lord. So they're like, let's, let's do it. We're working our way back into the garden, right? Next verse. After he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people, call back to day seven of creation. He blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Let's keep going. Then he gave a loaf of bread, cake of dates, cake of raisins. These are things you'll find in the tabernacle, okay? To each person in the whole crowd of Israel, both men and women. So you can see with the descriptions here that David is trying to create a garden inside the walls of the city called Jerusalem, okay? And like we just read here, these are the elements of the things you'll find in the, in the tabernacle. Okay, so Jerusalem becomes the first garden city. And we're hoping that it'll be like the Eden story, right? Like, yeah. By the way, the people who are reading this for the first time are reading this thinking, oh, we did it. We're finally bringing back the garden. Woohoo! I hope they don't mess it up like Adam and Eve did. Do they mess it up like Adam and Eve did? Well, let's keep reading. One evening, David got up from his bed and, was walked, and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw... Tuck that in the back of your head because we're going to come back to that. Saw a woman bathing. Next verse. The woman was very beautiful. Tuck that in the back of your mind. That's the Hebrew word tov, by the way. And David, that means good. Um, so he thought it was really good. Uh, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Okay, let's keep going. Then David sent messengers to get her. That's the third word to tuck in your head. She came to him and he slept with her. Now, the three words I mentioned here, let's go. She, David saw, saw that she was beautiful or good or tov in the Hebrew and took her. When people read the Genesis 3 story, when the woman comes to the serpent or the sea dragon and is listening to the serpent talk, the descriptor, the three main descriptors of that story in the Hebrew mind is that she saw that the fruit, she saw the fruit, she saw that it was good or tov, beautiful, and then she took it. Those are the three words that the Jewish mind usually thinks of when they think about that story. The three exact same Hebrew words are used in this story on purpose. As a matter of fact, think about this. Um, David is on a city on a hill, right? That's what it is. So, okay, so there's a garden that's on a hill and God's presence is there, and there's an abundance of things that people are blessed by it. In this story, there's a man and a woman, huh? and there's, somebody saw something, saw that it was good or beautiful, and then took it. Wait, Kotz, is this the story of Genesis 3, or is this the story of David and Jerusalem? The answer is yes. 
the author is intentionally using these words to tell, you, tell everybody, the reader, that this is an Adam and Eve story all over again. The people who are reading this are like, no, no, it's happening again. No, we were so close. We almost had it, David, you know, right? So the way that the author writes this story is that the author's way of saying that the city garden, it's been defiled. The experiment of a city garden failed. We're back to where we started. And as a matter of fact, if you read the Bible from this point on, every single king, save for a few who are actually strong-willed, um, they've all fallen into the exact same pattern. And in some cases, it gets more and more corrupt. It gets the same thing happens. Like I said, there's a few who are willing to push away the temptation, but most of the kings, they're like, yeah, we're gonna give in to the same temptation. It gets worse and worse and worse. So, should we give up on this idea of a city garden? Garden city, city garden? Well, there's a prophet that shows up and says, no, 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 don't give up on it. Because he's like, there's hope. There's hope for a new city garden that's coming up. His name is Ezekiel. Ezekiel's a prophet, and he has his vision. God takes him to, into this temple, and he's looking around, and he's writing down what he's seeing in his vision, okay? And this is what he says. Take a look here. Ezekiel 47. The man, in his vision, brought me back to the entrance of the temple. That's where God's presence is. And I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple towards the east, the water was coming down from under the south side of the temple, south of the altar. Let's keep going. He then brought me out through the north gate and led me around the outside, of the wa- uh, outside to the outer ga- uh, gate facing east, and the water was trickling from the south side. He's basically saying, from all sides of the, gar- uh, of the, of the temple, there's water that's flowing out. You might think there's a plumbing issue because like, there's water coming out of the building. This is a good thing, okay? Let's keep going. As the man went eastward with, uh, with a measuring line in his hand, he measured off a thousand cubits and then led me through the water that was ankle deep. So it's like, like he could kind of like play in the water, right? It's like a small pond. And then he measured off another thousand cubits and led me through water that was knee deep. Oh, okay, so there's more water now. He measured off another thousand and led me through water that was up to the waist. Like, oh man. This water's getting deeper and deeper. Let's keep going. He measured off another thousand, but now it was a river that I could not cross because the water had risen and was deep enough to swim in. So a, a river, it's basically this, this water turns into a river that no one could cross. Remember, the water from the garden is a representation of blessing, that God is giving life to everything, coming from all directions of the temple into the world, and he's saying, there was so much blessing, there's abundance flowing out so much, that I couldn't even cross it because the water, you know, is supposed to give life. Like if I go through it, I would drown, I would die. That would kind of be weird in this vision. So he doesn't cross it, right? <clears throat> so he's like, wow, there's so much water here. This is a vision of like God telling Ezekiel, don't give up on this garden city idea because it's going to happen. And when it does, the whole world is going to be blessed through it, just like the garden. He's saying this, there, oh, next slide, there, there will be a new city garden that will give life to all creation. Well, when is that going to happen? Far, far down the road. Now, a few hundred years after this, God sends his son to this earth. Jesus comes. And Jesus makes a reference to this very prophecy. He calls it the city on a hill. Jesus is like, let me tell you something about the city on a hill. Right? <clears throat> Jesus is giving a sermon. By the way, I don't know if you know this, but think about the relationship between Jesus and the city. When Jesus was born, was he born in a city? No, 
He was born in a village called Bethlehem, right? As a matter of fact, the, 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 the wise men who were like looking for this newborn baby, they go to the city first because they thought, of course, you know, this Messiah will be born in the city of God. And they're like, nope, not here. <laughs> you know, he had to leave the city to find Jesus, right? Um, Jesus does most of his ministry outside the city. And one of his big sermons, it's called the Sermon on the Mount, um, he gathers people outside the city and he gives this sermon, right? And he's talking, he makes a reference to the city. This is what he says in Matthew chapter five. You, the people who are following me, right? You are the light of the world, a town built on a hill or a city on a hill on some of your translations cannot be hidden. He's saying that vision of that city garden, it's gonna happen one day. And guess who's gonna be in it? All y'all, that's the Greek word. When he says you, it's talking about you all, y'all, right? He says, and then he starts talking about the ethic of the city. Like once you move into the city, this is what it's gonna be like. Let's keep going. You have heard that it said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek. This ethic that we're gonna be living by in this new city, when somebody wrongs you, you forgive them. What else? Let's keep going. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. The ethic of the city, generosity. Let's keep going. If anyone forces you to go one mile, as the Roman soldiers did back then, hey, take my stuff, carry it for a mile, because I don't want to carry it. Go with them two miles, service. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from one who wants to borrow from you. The ethic of the new city. We're gonna be generous people, forgiving people, loving people, people who serve one another. People who are willing to, when people ask for something, you say, no, keep it, it's yours. And then he sums it up with this line. You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's the ethic of our current city. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your father in heaven. You would know exactly who the citizens of the city is because when you wrong them, they say, I forgive you. Ooh, we're like we're enemies, ah. But why, why is this person loving me? Why is this person praying for me? Ethic of the city. And you are all citizens of that city. So the Sermon on the Mount is basically a preview of a future garden city. Jesus is giving us these high standards saying this is what it's gonna be like. And he says, and all of you guys are gonna feel right at home when you're there. As a matter of fact, the first century church, right after Jesus died, the church, right? The first century church, they believed that the church was a preview of the future garden city. So people will enter into, back then churches were in homes and they had about like 12 people. People will come into these homes their first time there and they'll say, this doesn't seem like it should work. There's a Roman centurion and there's a Jewish man and there's a master and there's a slave and there's a man and a woman and this shouldn't work. They should be at each other's throats. But they're breaking bread and they're drinking wine. They're, they're saying that they're committing to each other, saying that they're gonna serve one another and they're gonna die for one another. Like, what is this? They're like, well, we're just a preview of what's to come. And the first century church believed this. I know, crazy, right? Yeah. <laughs> now, all this is background information for what we're gonna read right now, Revelation 21 to 22. And I promise you, we're two-thirds to three-fourths of the way through the sermon. <laughs> oh yeah, the good news, this is the last part of Revelation that we're talking about. Bad news, 
I don't get to talk about Revelation anymore after this. Okay, then, this is chapter 21, verse one. Then I saw, this is John who wrote this book. He's like, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. To which you're like, wait a minute, no more surfing? He's not talking literally, okay? So the sea back then was a place of chaos, unpredictability. People will go out to sea and all of a sudden there's a storm that gets swallowed into the water. They're talking about how there's no longer chaos. That's what this means. Okay, just you guys know. Okay, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem. Hmm? That's, yeah. Coming down out of heaven, not us building it up, but God bringing it down to us like in the Garden of Eden. Prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. They're using marriage imagery here, which is a callback to Hosea, but we're not gonna get into that. Okay, let's keep going. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. It's this idea of intimate relationship. We are now together, God and humanity, finally together. They will, will be his people and God himself will be, uh, be with them and be their God. This is what God's been wanting all along. Jesus coming to dwell with people was, was one way of doing it, but now he could be with all people at once. He will wipe away, wipe every tear uh, from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. The old way of doing cities is now gone. Now, when we read this, especially if you're going through some ailments right now, you're like, oh, no more suffering, no more death, this is so cool, no more crying, oh, this is what I want. And yes, this is what John is saying here, but he's actually saying a lot more than that. Here's a scholar, his name is Jonathan Jonathan Moo, like the cow, and this is what he says. This is a depiction of a restored Edenic paradise. This is like Eden coming to us all over again. It is a world taken beyond threat. Okay, so he's not just, we'll come back to that. No more death, mourning, sorrow, or pain. Above all, it is a vision centered on and defined by the presence of God with his people. When we think about no more pain, no more, you know, sorrow and all that kind of stuff, you're like, yes, I'm actually going through that right now. Please, thank you, no more of that in the future. Yes, right? But what this scholar is also saying is this. A lot of the reasons why we wage war, right, is because we feel threatened. I need that medicine. I need that money to feed my family. I need this. I need that. I need to protect my family. And for that reason, there's more violence in this world. By God wiping away all those bad things, there's no more reason for us to go to war. No more reason for us to steal something, right? So that's, that's what he's saying here. So next part. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. All the old stuff, whoosh, new stuff. Okay, here we go. To the thirsty, oh, by the way, the word new, there's different Greek words for the word new. The word new here does not imply what I just demonstrated to you, like whoosh, and then start something new. That was bad. Um, it means like it's something that's already existing, but it's now made new. So it's a renewal, not wipe it away and, you know, something totally different, you know. Like, here's old cots, here's new cots. No, not like that. Here's old cots, but here's a new version of him. Okay, anyways, okay. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost. Abundance is free. Everybody gets it. From the spring of the water of life. That's a reference to Ezekiel, which we just looked over, right? Let's keep going. And he carried me away in the spirit, because, you know, the city of God has to have a mountain. Where's the mountain? Well, here it is. There's a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Wait a minute. Kotz, didn't you say that a city is supposed to have walls? The garden didn't have walls. So wait, what are we going to do about that wall thing, right? Because 
Is it, like, is it exclusive? Uh, are we going to keep people out? Like, why do we have walls in the future in this heaven, heavenly city? He addresses it right here. It had a great high wall with 12 gates. Oh, it still has gates. And with 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. Keep going. On no day will its gates ever be shut. For there will be no night there. Night is a sign of chaos. Because God is light. Now he's the opposite of that. So, like, so why even have a wall if you're going to have all, like, well, there's 12 gates. So there's four walls. So there's three gates on each side, which is like a, what, what Jerusalem looks like. You know, the wall around it has three gates on both sides, uh, all four sides. But like, why even have walls if you're going to have it open all the time? Well, I've been reading a lot of scholars and some, a lot of them say this. In the same way that when Jesus died and rose again, he still had the scars in his hands and his feet, right? He didn't have to have those scars when he resurrected, right? But he had it. It's a reminder of the price that was paid. It was a reminder of how things used to be, right? So as you go to this new heavenly city, you walk through and you look around, it's like, well, look at these walls. Remember when they used to be shut? But now we're open to everybody. Let's keep going. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, call back to Ezekiel, hyperlink, double click it and it'll take you to Ezekiel. As clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great city, uh, street of the city. This river is coming not from a tree this time, it's coming from God himself. And it's going down the main street of this new Jerusalem and let's see what's around it. On each side of the river stood the tree of life. Now we don't know if there's like actually two trees of life, or if it's one big tree of life that's kind of branched at the bottom into two parts and the, city, the, the river is flowing through it. We don't know, but there's a tree of life which is in the Garden of Eden. Bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. Again, abundance. There's never going to be hunger again because there's enough for everybody. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Nations will stop warring against each other because there's an abundance for everybody. There's no more greed. No more death. No more sickness. All the reasons that we have for going to war is wiped out. And that brings healing to the nations. There's abundance. And it's good for all people. Not just people who look like us. Or the people who believe like us. Or the, sees the world like us. It's good for all people. And like I said, God is light. The opposite of light is darkness. And so this is why John says this. There will be no more night. They will not need light or a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will, be, will give them the light because he is light and they will reign forever and ever. This is how this portion of, of Revelation ends. My favorite scholar N.T. Wright, this is what he says about this passage. As heaven and earth come together, as the bride and the lamb come together, both signs that... Th signs that the dualities in Genesis are at last united as intended, so the garden and the city come together as well. God is all about bringing things together that were meant to be together but were separated because of sin, right? Keep going. Humans, in communion with one another and with God, are to exercise their delight, delighted and wise stewardship over the earth and its fruits in the glorious light that comes from the throne. As God has given us abundance, in this new Jerusalem, we're going to be giving to other people in the way that God has given us. If God is generous towards us, we're going to be generous to the people around us. If God is 
giving us healing, we're gonna be giving healing to the people around us. As God has shown us love unconditionally, we will be loving people unconditionally in this new Jerusalem. And N.T. Wright ends by saying this, like other aspects of this vision of the ultimate future, because this is about the future, this too is to be anticipated in the present. He's like, the book of Revelation was not written so you could predict the future. Oh, the mark of the beast must be this. Oh, I see that in our politicians. Oh, the vaccine must be the, right, right, right. We all try to think about like, what is it that, that, is, you know, that we see in the book of Revelation? And he right, the scholar is saying, guys, yes, this is about the future, but the point of this passage is so that we could start implementing this here right now. This is a book about the present. In other words, he's saying this, the church is a preview of the garden city. What does that mean? If in the future, God is, is welcoming people with all their gates open, that God is trust, wants us to trust him, he's like, the church ought to be like that right now. He's saying this, we should always be, always be welcoming. We should always be trusting God. We should always be helping others to heal. We should always be generous towards the people around us. And we should always offer a safe space, space for the people that need the safe space. Why? Because that's where we're headed, and the church is a preview of the things to come. Revelation is not a book of fear, as a lot of people and a lot of preachers like to say that it is. It's a book of hope. And basically an instruction as to how the church ought to look like today. And if it doesn't, we should at least be moving in that direction. We should not be giving up hope. So the question I believe that John is asking the readers today is this. Does our church represent God's future garden city? When we come to church, or even if you don't go to church, if you're, you know, you're thinking about church, what's the first word that comes to mind? Segregation? Hatred? Fear? No, he's like, no, church should be welcoming. It should be bringing things together, not separating people. Creating a us versus them mentality? No, 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 no. That's the city mentality. The garden city mentality? is where we bring people together, bringing opposite sides together. When we think about church, do you think about hoarding? The church is always hoarding resources. Mm -mm. According to what John is saying here, the church should be a place of generosity. We should be giving things away to the people who need it. When you think of the church, do you think that, oh, the church is so filled with hate? The church should not be a place of hate. It should be a place of love, unconditional love. A place of protection, sure, there's a place for protection in the church, but a church is also a place where we are vulnerable with each other. So are we, this specific church, Westlake Community Church, do we represent God's future garden city? I'm sure everybody here has a different opinion about where we are in this journey but I hope that we are all pointing in the same direction, the direction of becoming the future garden city. Amen? All right, let's pray.